The Incomparable Podcast, number 59, October 2011. We're back on The Incomparable Podcast. When you last heard us in the most insane podcast we have ever done, and that's saying something, we had a draft, and everybody drafted 10 characters from all of TV ever, including the Star Wars Holiday Special, John. And, um... Because that was the deal, all of TV ever. Now, phase two of this is not that we just kind of like put those characters up on our mantle somewhere and say, wow, look at those awesome characters I picked. You got to make a show. You got to make a show with the characters. And that is what tonight's incomparable session is all about. We we are going to pitch shows based on the ridiculous groups of characters that we picked. In the the case of Steve, ridiculous anyway. uh, Last time. So, joining me today... Um, are John Syracusa, who had an excellent and sane collection of characters uh, last time. John, thank you for coming back. Excellent and sane is my motto. That, that's good. <laughs> In Latin, though. But, you know. Uh, and, and just as a refresher, your characters were River Song, Daisy from Spaced, Jack Shepard from Lost, Joan from Mad Men, Han Solo, Echo from mm-hmm. Dollhouse, Hank from Terriers, Sawyer from Lost, Khal Drogo and Tywin Lannister from Game of Thrones. Emmy Award winner. When I say "Eat it, Snell," yes. No, that's that's Steve's line. Uh, I recommend it. It's uh, it's highly cathartic. You can all say it. That's right. Scott McNulty. Uh, yes. You your t- your uh, your team is uh, David Tennant's Doctor from Doctor Who, Q the Omnipotent from Star Trek, Columbo, Tom Servo from Mystery Science Theater three thousand. Mirth from Mork and Mindy, Larry David from Curb Your Enthusiasm, MacGyver, Jose Chung, guest star on The X-Files and Millennium, Lorelai Gilmore from The Gilmore Girls, and Space Ghost, talk show host from Space Ghost Coast to Coast. How do you feel about your your uh, your team? Not good. Not okay. good at all. All right. But you're prepared. Yes. Okay. At Poorly. least there's that. Poorly prepared. Excellent. That's my motto. Also joining me, Dan Morin. Hi, Dan. Hi, Jason. You have the Vampire Detective Squad, do you not? Well, when life hands you vampires, make Vampirade. Okay. I'll be trademarking, trademarking Vampirade. Vampirade. And it's a um, sponsor of my show. Among, among your, your cast members, Angel from Buffy and Angel, Wendy Watson from The Middleman, Jim Rockford from The Rockford Files, Foe Livia Dunham from the alternate universe in Fringe, Kolchak, the Night Stalker, Sean from Psych. Mick St. John and Nick Knight from two shows you've never seen, Maddie Hayes from Moonlighting, and Spencer from Spencer for Hire. That's right. Okay. Have you seen your, your off-brand Canadian uh, vampire entertainment in the I have, I, have, I have watched a little bit. Okay. I watched a little bit of Rockford Files. I watched a little bit of everything. I did some research. Good. That's preparation. I like to, I like to hear that. That's what I do. Okay. Steve Lutz. Yes, sir. Perhaps the greatest assemblage of talent. In fantasy TV series history, which really is pretty much one podcast worth of history. You have Anthony Fremont as played by Bill Mooney in that classic Twilight Zone episode. Ben Linus from Lost. Larry Dallas from Three's Company. Skeletor from He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. (laughs) Joe Bluth from Arrested Development. Dr. House from House MD. Um, From another series about a doctor... um, Rudy Huxtable, 
He was a doctor, right? He was a pediatrician, wasn't Cliff Huxtable? He, he was. All right. Little Murray Sparkles, the cat puppet from Sesame Street. <laughs> the Fonz. <laughs> from that was not a good Fonz. From Happy Days. And uh, and Crazy Jim from Taxi. Yes. That is correct. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Although deplorable. Correction here. Uh, yes. Cliff Huxtable was not a pediatrician. What was he? I believe gynecology obstetrician. Oh, okay. That's true. That's right. All right. Thank you. Good knowledge. That's good Cosby knowledge. Where did Theo go to school? That's actually from his storehouse of OBGYN knowledge. I I don't. I'm not a Cosby expert. Okay. All right. Serenity Caldwell. Hello. Hello, Jason. Are you prepared with your uh, your your uh, your show? Are you ready to go? I I am so ready. All right. I am half a page of ready. Excellent. Um, your your roster is Natalie from Sports Night, King Silas from Kings, Castiel the Angel, an angel who's an angel, not a vampire, from Supernatural, Young Indiana Jones, age 10 from Young Indiana Jones, Dr. Chom Jackman, who has a, uh, who is also Mr. Hyde, from Jekyll, uh, Logan from Dark Angel, Manservant Neville from The Middleman, the Artificial Intelligence Andromeda from Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda, Danny Tripp from Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, and Colin the Dog from Spaced. Correct? Correct. All right. And uh, in addition to the commissioner of this ridiculous league, I am also an owner of a team. My characters are Captain Kirk from Star Trek, Hawkeye from MASH, Willow from Buffy, Jeff from Coupling, Magnum P.I. himself, Kaylee from Firefly, Jerry Seinfeld from Seinfeld. What was I thinking? Veronica Mars um, herself, Omar from The Wire, and Charlie Brown from Peanuts. So, uh, Dan, you may go first. All right. So, here we go. Uh, Coming this fall on NBC. Um, Working title. In a (laughs) world. world. Uh, I have, I have, I have, I have to say, I spent a long time trying to come up with a title, and I could never find one that that I quite like that much. But ask me by the end of the show, um, and I have like about twenty that I will read off for you, some of which are quite good and terrible. So currently, uh, but, this is untitled Dan Morgan it, it, Project, it, untitled Vampire Detective Project. No, I, I, I'm working, working TBD. titled Bloody, Bloody. All right. Do mm-hmm. you have an elevator pitch? Do you know the one, a one liner before we get into the details? I have taglines okay. like you know that you would see on the marketing poster, um, including. They work nights. Um, also, alternatively, it's been a hard day's night, and crime doesn't stand a chance in hell. Um, and an extensive list of titles that are far worse than any of those. All right. So, premise of the show. Um, with a combined experience of more than 1,000 years of sleuthing, these three can unravel almost any mystery, sometimes without even leaving their office, which is good, because if they step in the sunlight, they'll catch on fire. Pilot. Um, episode... 101, titled The Bloodsucker Proxy. (laughs) Boo. Trust me, for the undead. These are like cheers in this realm, right? This is how this works? No, cheers was good. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm putting myself out there first. Any of you guys could have stepped forward. Keep your comments to the end. This is exactly why we didn't. (laughs) Thanks for setting the stage, Dan. Mysteriously sucked through portals, a quartet of vampires, each from different realities, enter our own world. Angel, David Boreanis, Mick St. John, Alex O'Loughlin, Nick Knight, Garrett Wynn-Davies, 
and Henry Fitzroy, guest star Kyle Schmidt. Recognizing each other for what they are, the four come to an uneasy truce as they try to discover what has brought them to this terrifying locale, Santa Barbara, California. Deprived of their resources, the four quickly turn to the one pursuit they know, that of private investigations. But all too quickly, they realize that this world has no need for detectives of their caliber. There is no lurking supernatural evil, no terrifying criminal masterminds. Instead, clients want them to find lost pets or track cheating spouses. They also find themselves constantly hounded by a wannabe assistant, Sean Spencer, James Roday, who touts his own crime-solving prowess, but is more of an annoyance than any use. Fitzroy, having had enough of this detective lifestyle, decides to retire. Surely 480 years is old enough to qualify for Social Security. The others try to disabuse him, but he's adamant and moves to a nearby retirement community, Shady Glen. But when Fitzroy turns up dead at Shady Glen, and not ah. just dead, but starts staked through the heart with a stake of the purest Carpathian wood, our fanged heroes descend to investigate. <laughs> Rich Carpathian wood. <laughs> turns out it's a, it's a retirement community for ex-detectives and cops who are two weeks from retirement. Run by a former private detective, Maddie Hayes, Civil Shepherd. Fake private detective. Maddie is eager to have the trio look into things off the record, though her assistant, Esther Finkelstein, and one of the resident's granddaughters seem less than thrilled. When they start poking around, they're caught by the purported granddaughter, who turns out to be Fringe Division Special Agent Olivia Dunham, working undercover, and by <gasps> Esther, who turns out to be none other than newly promoted middlewoman Wendy Watson. <gasps> The two women clash with each other, though at least both agree that they can't quite trust the good-looking but suspiciously pale and strangely youthful young men who have a habit of disappearing whenever they're not being uh, actively watched. Sean Spencer also proves his worth when his latent psychic powers manifest, leaving him haunted by a ghostly presence from beyond. Three presences, in fact. Renowned detectives Carl Kolchak, Jim Rockford, and Spencer. No relation. <laughs> All of whom were former residents of Shady Glen. They reveal that something more is going on at the retirement home, and that perhaps our vampire friends were not the only things to be sucked into this world. Dun, Ooh. dun, dun. Whoa. So, so it's not just vampire detectives. It's vampire detectives and ghost detectives? And ghost detect ghosts oh. of former detectives. Supernatural oh. detectives? Uh, or our- oh. What happened to Nick Knight? Nick Knight, he's on there. He's one of the three. He's the he's one of the three who lives, and then the the, the fourth guy who I didn't get to draft is the guest star who gets off. In the oh, pilot. he gets off. Okay. Yeah. So I have yeah. a question: How are people coming to these people to find their lost pets and meeting with them at night? Like, if I want to get someone to find my cat, I'm gonna say, "Sure, come over." Their office is only open at night, or they can come in the office. Yeah, I mean, they have office hours. I feel. I, I thought you were gonna do like a day shift and a you night know when shift. you lose your cat at two in the morning and uh, you don't want to wait. <laughs> Until the morning when the, the cat finder office is generally open at 10 a.m. I mean, think about it, right? The best chances of finding your pet are very soon after they disappear. If they disappear at night, you don't want to wait until next morning and see like, ah, oh, Fluffy disappeared like 12 hours ago. The, the trail is cold after so, 12 hours. So they basically got a very limited range because they're night detectives. So they, only, they, work, they work nights. They that's night the tagline. Yes. Yeah. Um, so that's my, that's my, my pitch. Um, I thank you for your time. I'll see myself hey. out. I think we should have a judging system, and it should be, I would watch that or I wouldn't watch that. So who would watch his show? I would watch that, but I'll, I'll watch pretty much anything. I would watch <laughs> I would watch it, too. Uh, I'd watch I the watch pilot. Okay. I'd watch and the pilot. And see if and it's then... any good. Yeah. So, so as a network executive... <laughs> oh, that's gonna be it's gonna be canceled after season one if it makes it that long. Six episodes. I give it six episodes. So, so, so the tack I'm gonna take here is is do I have some notes for you as the as the network executive? And I do. I'm gonna say I think it's confusing that you've got these guys coming from other universes. 
So I'd simplify it. I'd have them be that they were always here and they, they, they used to have a more thriving business, but now they're a little more down on their luck. Evil's not the business, the growth industry that it used to be. It's like the economy, See, you know? I, I would have gone that way. Oh, I mean, that, that, that's a good answer. I mean, I think part of the, the trickiness is because we have characters coming from different universes, I think the temptation is to say there must be some explanation for how they all got to our universe. Incidentally, in mine, the... the they're all from the TV. Premise. Isn't TV one uh, big, happy universe? But he's got other people being sucked in from other universes as part of his story, right? The, the potential backstory for that is that the collective willpower of millions of teenage girls trying to force uh, Edward Cullen from Twilight into existence slightly miss and instead get oh. these other vampires. Oh. <laughs> well, as, as a studio exec, our research shows that vampires are trending downwards, but mummies are trending up. So if you could rework the show to include more mummies. Right. I love the I mean, show. I love it. It's a great idea. However, more have you thought about not having vampires, but instead mummies? Gold. Mummies. <laughs> And then that's when I walk out with my head hung at shame. <laughs> also, well, look, we have this alternate, uh, this alternate concept. We, we'd like to remake Petticoat Junction. So if you'd rather work on that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With mummies. With mummies. <laughs> with mummies. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> it's a license to print money, I tell you. All right. Uh, uh, would anybody like to volunteer next, or are you all still cowards? I'll go next, though. Uh, all right. John, I get you... Over Get yes, get it over with. Hit so, us with your best shot, John. I don't. I don't think this is as long as Dan's, but I would ask that everyone hold their groaning until the end. No, no promises. <laughs> I refuse to promise that. Okay, and and before you, you know, do you have a title and do you have an elevator pitch? I do not have an elevator pitch, and the title will be at the end. Okay. All right. Sort of a punchline. All right. Well, you're building up to it. Uh, I would. That's not. That's not. Uh, calling it a punchline may be too generous. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> Lower expectations. Yeah. Yes. It's 500 years in the future. Mankind has slipped the surly bonds of Earth and is spread across the galaxy thanks to a propulsion breakthrough that harnesses the powerful electrostatic discharges found in the atmospheres of gas giant planets. Yes, that all makes sense. A planned planetary government controls most of the civilized planets, but on the more outer rim planets, let's say, government authority is less potent. Han Solo is the captain of a starship and a smuggler. Surprise. River Song is his second in command, a tough, competent lady who knows her way around a gun and an old war, war buddy of Han's. Its pilot and trusted friend is Hank Dalworth, a rumpled, good-natured fellow who also happens to be River Song's husband. Oh. Yeah. Daisy Steiner is the ship's mechanic. She's young and innocent, but a whiz with a hydro spanner. <laughs> James Ford is a hired gun. He's great in a fight, but the others on the crew not, are not sure that he can be trusted. Joan Harris is a high-class courtesan tagging along on Han's ship, both, both for transport and protection. Her presence lends an air of legitimacy to an otherwise ragtag crew, but there's definitely some sexual tension between Joan and the scruffy-looking Han. Into the life of this crew falls Jack Shepard, a doctor from one of the civilized planets, and his slightly crazy <laughs> sister, Echo. They're both from the government, but won't explain why. Tywin Lannister is the government officer in charge of apprehending Jack and Echo, and he has no trouble going through some anti-government rebel scum to get what he wants. Finally, at the far reaches of the known planets lie the nomadic tribes known as the Horde, huh. led by Khal Drogo. Uh -huh. Even government ships fear them. Together, Han and his crew flit from planet to planet in their tiny spaceship, making a dishonest living as smugglers, while they avoid any imperial entanglements and steer clear of the Horde, all while still trying to be the good guys in the movie of their lives. There are on-ship crushes, betrayals, heist of the week episodes on remote planets, and an overall story arc concerning the mysterious backstory of Jack and Echo. The show's title is the name of Han's ship, The Lightning Bug. <laughs> wow! Can we groan now? Brilliant! It's gonna make a Go. million dollars. Well, I've never heard of anything like this before. I have a feeling that this show will be canceled after thirteen episodes, only ten of which will air. 
Yes, not, not not in the correct order. And not even in correct order. Wow. Wow. Sounds wow. I have nothing to say to that. I executed the plan. Not very creative, but it's kind of like like in Pet Cemetery when the dad really wants the little boy to come back to life. So he uses dark magic and, uh, and reanimates the corpse. That's what I've done here. Usually so they the just recast this. Yeah. This, uh, yeah, I mean... What was the over/under and how long and how many uh, character descriptions it took people to figure out where he was going with this? <laughs> I think I made it about three. I think I made it about three before I figured it's it out. It's really I tried to order it so it was not obvious, but seriously, there's very little you can say to not give it away because it was such a neat combination. <laughs> I will give you I will give you serious credit for drafting an entire fantasy, uh, you know, entire cast that it would not even have occurred to me to go in this direction, but it fits pretty well. I gotta say, it does. It was premeditated, but with this cast, though, I would think I was thinking about other things I could do with this cast. Uh, When you have a cast full of like strong leads from other, because we're all picking like our favorite guy, like well, I don't know, the people who weren't picking cartoons were picking our favorite people (laughs) from certain from certain shows. And when you have a cast of strong leads like that, you have to do like an ensemble show. Like you can't you can't just do like these two main guys and supporting characters because the other ones are, are just wasted in that. So. Ensemble shows on spaceships work really well. Even it's like Star Trek: Next Generation, but you know, episodes would focus on different members of the crew. Uh, ensemble shows are great. I don't know why they don't. I honestly, I guess ER was kind of an ensemble show, but space ensemble shows. I wish there were more of them that yeah, weren't Star River Trek. Only song had been on ER. Maybe I would have watched it. Hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Han Solo. The only thing that scared me to death, John, in that entire thing was when you told us about how the backstory of of Jack and Echo would eventually come out because again that's going to be an episode where we explain his tattoos and I don't want to see it. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I mean, come on. It can it can rest very well on the acting talents of Matthew Fox Matthew Fox and Eliza Dushku. I'm sure they can carry an episode. <laughs> to do it. And don't worry, that that episode will never air. Well, that's why that's why Eliza Dushku is good because she's already nuts at like and she was good at playing nuts and we don't right. expect her to be sensical. It was actually really hard to find matchups for those for those roles. I had very few alternates. Like Jack works as a doctor because Simon yeah. Tam was pretty boring. And right. Jack was kind of boring, you know what I mean? Kind of upstanding, doty do, you know, protecting his sister. The, you know. Yeah, the heroes. Who's um Dan? Who's boy? Who's the boyfriend in Middleman? Because he would work well oh, as a Tyler Simon. Ford. Tyler Ford would work well as a Simon stand-in. I put Tyler Ford. Tyler Ford's too cool for that. <laughs> All right. Anything more to say about Lightning Bug? Would you watch this show? I would watch the. I watched the hell out I of. I have this watched show. this show. I have. I watched all of this show. <laughs> <laughs> I would not watch this show. I don't like this Han Solo guy, though. He seems like a, a Mal Reynolds uh, knockoff. I don't know. I've been I don't like before. the idea that Han Solo flits from planet to planet. That just doesn't seem in character. Small ship. So it's a, he sounds like the kind of guy that would shoot second. lightning bug angle. Oh, I don't like the lightning bug. Powered by lightning. Did you get that part? All right. Any, any, other, uh, any other thoughts about lightning bug before we move on? Well, Jason, you should do your notes. Because, like, do you think there was something wrong with Firefly that, that caused it to not be successful? Or would you change oh, it in some way? Wait, is this turning into a Firefly plot? It was because on Fox. As a, as a Fox executive, I have to say that I think your pilot, while excellent, and perhaps the best thing you've ever done, Joss, um, we're just not going to air... John, it's John, John by the way. It's yeah, John, not Joss. We're, just don't we're, whatever you say, Joey. Um, we're, we're, uh, <laughs> we're, we're not going to show it. We'll, we'll just pick a random episode from later on, and uh, we'll show that one instead. And we'll see what happens. So good luck with that. Brilliant. And don't make, you know, don't plan on being around here in the spring. <laughs> Clean out your desk now, in fact. Yes. 
All right, Scott McNulty, it's your turn. Oh, dear. Okay. Um, I don't have uh, an elevator pitch, so I'm just going to jump in to... Do uh, you have a title? This, uh, I do, but uh, I, I will. it'll be explained oh, in the... Oh, suspenseful title again. Okay. No, not really. It's it's right in the second paragraph here. And I All only right. have uh, 50 paragraphs, so... It's great. <laughs> Excellent. I'm looking for a Bible with the complete story arc out five years if we're going to invest in your show, so everybody be ready for that. So, I, I'm ready. I have it. Uh, I, I'll just email it to you right now. Okay. Thank check, you. check your BlackBerry. Um, <clears throat> all right. You've heard of girl meets boy. You've heard of girl meets girl and boy meets boy. Now hear the amazing story of when bot means meets omnipotent being. That's right. In Q Conquers All, Tom Servo is a boy, a bot in love with Q, a being who can change the gravitational constant of the universe, <laughs> but doesn't have a clue when it comes to relationships. The is series. Q okay with his non-functional hands? I just have to ask. Oh, the series, on, narrated by Larry David, playing the future Tom Servo, <laughs> uh, recounts when Servo meets Q, Q for the first time. Tom Servo, world arm wrestling champ, is in his, <laughs> with his coach confidant Jose Chung when Q walks into the gym and time stops, literally. It would seem Q is locked in battle with Space Ghost when they crashed into the gym. Gym owner Doctor Who saves his gym, crying, Today, no punching bag dies! With the clever use of his sonic screwdriver. Q, temporarily bereft of his powers due to the doctor's trick, needs a place to stay, and Tom Servo invites him to stay with him in his midtown loft, but doesn't ask his roommates first. MacGyver and Columbo aren't as excited about Q rooming with them. They grill Q, and Columbo has one more question before he votes with Tom to let Q crash on the couch. Cue the montage! Q throws away Columbo's cigars. MacGyver disarms Q's annoyingly loud alarm clock with a toothpick. Tom and Q build a house of cards, only to have it knocked over by dog. Columbo's basset, basset hound, of course. The roommates decide to have a little party, which gets out of hand, when Space Ghost shows up to settle his beef with Q one-on-one. -on -one. A knock on the door stops the fight, and it turns out to be the roomie's neighbor, Lorelai Gilmore, cradling her newborn son. Mirth. As <laughs> as soon as Q sees Lorelai, he's in love, and you can embed you can bet hijinks will ensue on Q conquers all. Coming soon. It's sure to be pretty, pretty good. <laughs> I'm calling a foul. He did not draft that dog. I agree. <laughs> yeah. I had to draft my dog. The the dog was a, a guest star. The dog is essentially Columbus yes. Sonic screwdriver. Yes, stars are alive. I, I objected to the Sonic Screwdriver and the TARDIS, too, luckily. The, the dog, I objected to Han Solo, but hey, okay, we let him slide the dog, That was within the rules perfectly, not, not, even, not even debatable. Steve, see if we can solve this. The dog <laughs> dies at the end of the pilot. And it's not awesome. a series, okay? Wow, not, I am not watching this show, then. That's sad. I'm not watching that this show. It. <laughs> you can't kill the dog. So, I have to ask. So, the, the doctor owns a... Uh, uh, Jim. Jim? He does. <laughs> Is it what a special? Is, is it, it like a time gym? No, it's just a gym. This, right. this is this it's is bigger uh, on the inside. I mean, uh, it is <laughs> <laughs> spacious gym. That's right. The gym will make you bigger on the inside. It's only one inch bigger on the inside, though, so it's not so impressive. So, but, so Tom Servo is is not in love with Q. No, Tom Servo is in love with Q. Q is in love with Lorelai Gilmore. Oh, I see. So it's a, sort of a love triangle. Exactly. Mm. All right. Who's Lorelai Gilmore in love with? Columbo? She she only has eyes for her son, Mirth. Oh, okay. <laughs> I see. Space no, Ghost that's just is, gross. Is Space Ghost sort of an antagonist? 
He is. He is he uh, Q's arch nemesis. All right. Um, I was not sold until I was promised hijinks, at which point I immediately decided I would watch this. I was sold when it came to MacGyver because Richard Dean Anderson, as we all know, very dreamy. And, uh, you know, with him and Columbo and Q combined, I I will watch that portion of it. Um, My notes would be the love story may be superfluous to the main action, which are these characters. But I I also think the the act of having uh, your primary character uh, be, be a narrator from the future recounting events, which is a really interesting concept I haven't seen before. Years. <laughs> <clears throat> you know, and kids, that's how I met your how, um, I, how I met your uh, omnipotent deity. That's how I met your omnipotent stepfather. Yes. <laughs> oh, well, the the alternate title was How I Met Your Q. So. Oh. oh. <laughs> nice. Nice. Also, you said Q hijinks, which I thought yes. was funny cuz Yeah, yeah, that was good. They're Q right. hijinks. Haha. See? It's a nice twist of a uh, twist of tongue. Where's my yeah. check? We'll we'll pass. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> sorry. I like your moxie, kid. Mm-hmm. Come right. back next year. How about if it's all set on a spaceship and they flit from planet to planet, <laughs> <laughs> and then we're so flitting again? What is it with you people and flitting? It's a lightning bug. They flit in. <laughs> it's the thing. It's the hot thing. Vampires are out and flitting is in. That's what they tell me. That's what my research tells me. The highest scoring pilot we've had in five years was about three kids in a Volkswagen Beetle who flit from place to place. Flitting is in. I can put my characters in a Beetle. Okay. <laughs> so like an actual so Beetle? So Hugh, MacGyver, uh, Tom Servo, and Mirth are in a Beetle. In the Doctor's Beetle. Which is bigger on the inside, so uh, several other people are also in it. It works itself out. These okay. things write themselves. And the engine Clearly. is in the back. Yeah. All right, um, who would like to go next? Oh, hell, I will. <laughs> ah, take her. Okay, Ren, Okay. lay it on us. All right, so the name of my show is called Wiretapped, and I have a tagline that goes, they've lost the world, they're looking for the truth. In the near future, a mysterious force field has trapped the citizens of the San Francisco Peninsula from the outside world. The wall appeared with no warning or explanation, and the citizens were quickly put into panic. Was it there to keep them out or keep them in? Is the outside world still even there? To survive, the corporations of the peninsula have taken over, reforming broken circuits and freeways and collapsing the economy inwards, ruling the towns and the flow of information. Manservant Neville is the head, or excuse me, Manservant Neville is the head of one such corporation, uh, maker of the U-Master and of solar panels, which now power the city. And the public figurehead many have turned to in the recent years. He's often seen in company with his dog, Colin, and his associate, Tom Jackman. While he and others attempt to keep the city stable, groups of ragtag informalists seek answers, tapping the wire to bring citizens the truth, or what they think is the truth, to keep corporations in check. Natalie Hurley is one such eye-lister. She was once a sports reporter. With the wall in place, she seeks answers. She works with Logan Kale, tech whiz and multimillionaire, to broadcast a 60-second spot called Wiretapped. They tap the system with help from her former colleague, Danny Tripp, who left Los Angeles for San Francisco to recover from a drug addiction. The wall came down two weeks later, and Danny returned to drugs, what drugs he can find. But he knows the router codes and can get them on air. Aiding them in their search for information is 10-year-old Henry Indiana Jones, cut off from his father when the wall came down. And now to the pilot. 
Two years after the wall's appearance, Henry discovers a flash drive sealed in a plastic bag washed up along the shoreline. He brings it to Logan and Natalie, who discover that the drive contains codes for a project Andromeda, but the information is encrypted, written, to, written in a programming language none of them understand. As they try and crack the code, a man in the southern peninsula is preparing to end his life. His name is Silas Benjamin. At one point, a highly ranked politician on the peninsula and a devoutly religious man, the wall and subsequent corporational takeover has made him into a shell of who he once was. He doubts and blames himself for the disaster. As he is about to commit his final act, he is stopped by Castiel, an angel of the Lord. (laughs) Castiel explains that his work is not yet finished and Silas must come with him. Castiel brings him to an island off the coast of the peninsula where the force field bisects. Inside the ruined building, they find a young woman with no memory. Castiel explains that the field had kept the angels out for two years, and yet somehow the girl was able to pass through the wall and bring him with her. Your mission, Silas, Castiel orders. Find out who she is. Dun, dun, dun. That is the end. So it's it's like Max Headroom meets... The Peace War. Yeah. That's crazy. Is is the is the wall opaque or transparent? It, sounds like, it reminds me of it reminds me of spin. It is like spin. It it translates, so you can't actually see. It's it's opaque, but at the same time, you occasionally see flashes of normalcy, and you also see flashes of complete devastation. So no one knows what the hell is going on. Uh, and so if you touch it, you die. Through? How does the sun yeah. get through? For the solar. The sun. It's 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 just general light. I believe that it's sort of like a foggy day. To it's, tra- it's, exactly. translucent. it's translucent. It's translucent. Like yes. every day in San and the and the weather. It's yeah, exactly. To shoot. Yes, it is. <laughs> it is. That, that's a good. And the weather patterns still get through. People just can't pass, uh, bisect oh, under the dome. Another one. That's good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No. Oh, yeah. Silver or the Stephen King. I would I would definitely watch this, but I would be annoyed the whole time I was watching it by anything that had anything to do with technology, tapping into things, flash drives, programming, encryption. I would just be like, I hate it when they do computer stuff. But I would watch it. I like the premise. I I too would watch it. I think I think the, I mean obviously the cast is a given, but. It's intriguing enough. There's there's a central mystery. There's something to solve. There's something to find out. There's some reason to tune in week after week. It's like a closed room mystery, but yeah. really big room. Writ really really large. Room, right? It's got yeah. it's yeah. got that cyberpunk element and that kind of uh, fighting against the corporations element, plus this mysterious kind of supernatural. You know, what's the cause of this? Was it supernatural? Was it technological? Which uh, people love that until they find out it was all angels that d- that did it in the last episode, and then they yes. get very angry. Yes. I would not watch this because uh, it sounds like a really cool concept and therefore cancel bait ah. and uh, mm-hmm. therefore guarantees disappointment for all. I, I watch cancel the concept. bait. I, I'm, I'm obligated to, so I would tune in. I've been burned one too many times, my friend. What if I told I, I am, you it was a 12-episode miniseries? Well, <laughs> now we may have something here. I bet the young Indiana Jones is uh, really annoying, though. He's a little bit annoying, but that's kind of his charm. All right. He's got to be better than Shia LaBeouf. Ooh. I, I would have gone with 17-year-old uh, Sean Patrick Flannery. Yeah, yeah. And he's slightly older because it's two years later. So. Mm. Interesting. All right. Um, Steve, do you want to go or or you want me to go? All right, go? I'll go. All I'll right. go ahead. Uh, <clears throat> mine's a, a little high concept. No. And, uh, <laughs> do we have to be high to get the concept? Is that how this uh, works? It would help. <laughs> And also, my pitch is not terribly pitchy because it depends on about 45 minutes worth of background material. So I'm <laughs> nice. depending entirely on my elevator pitch to, to grab you right up front and make you hungry for more. It's more of a, more of a PowerPoint presentation. It's, it's actually more like a broken down elevator pitch. Is this like what homeless people yell? <laughs> By the time you want to get out of the elevator. 
And my elevator pitch is, <clears throat> my show has a Zeppelin in it. <laughs> tell me, I may tell be me pandering more. a little to my audience here. Tell that me is, more. That is pandering. Tell me more. That's, that's exactly the reaction let, that let I was me, let, me, let me call my secretary. Bonnie, clear my <laughs> schedule for the next 45 minutes. Of course it's Bonnie. All right, so the name of my show is, uh, is simply, and I wrestled with this for a bit, but I rounded eventually on just good. Mm. Uh, this in spite of the, the horrible temptation that will present for TV critics to give their reviews yes. clever titles like good isn't. Uh. <laughs> um, let, me, let me just lay or it out for you. I'll start out with the nothing. opening shot. Yes. More, more like we'll go bad, am I right? Not good enough. Uh. That's a good one. Mm. So the opening shot, all is dark. We hear a musical portion of Ray Charles' version of Nighttime is the Right Time in the background. The camera pulls back and we realize that we are emerging from an extreme close-up of a mouth. Then the lips part to sing the word, baby, in time with the music. I worked for hours on that and it really didn't come off at all. Bravo. We pull back further and see that the lip syncer is Rudy Huxtable standing alone in a utilitarian corridor. She has a third arm with accompanying sleeve growing out of the center of her chest. She shouts, baby, again, as something huge and hairy enters frame from left. As we back further away, we see that it is an enormous three-headed gopher. A man with wheels where his feet should be rolls into frame from the right and begins to wail away at the gopher with a white-tipped black cane, all the while shouting, Come on! His cries are suddenly muffled as we pass through a large window and into a small room where a young man covered in electrodes lies asleep on a small bed. We back past another older man sitting at the bedside, staring intently at the sleeper. He pops the cover off a pill bottle and tips it into his mouth as we back through another window and find ourselves outside. There's a moment of disorientation as it is revealed that the room is hovering over empty space until we pull back far enough to see that it is actually dangling beneath a large 70s-era Goodyear blimp. From our angle, only the word good is visible. At last, we have zoomed out far enough that we can see the earth far below. The landscape consists of the same small rural village repeated multiple times like a bad Photoshop. Fade to black. Are you grabbed? Where are all your characters? I, or are you just asleep? I'm not. I'm not sure if I'm grabbed or impaled. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where Larry is. Who's well, one generally follows the other? Who's the guy? Who's the? Well, we'll get. We'll get uh, there. All right. Okay. Oh, it's not done. Oh, I thought. I thought. I. I yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. We're not even close. <laughs> yeah. No. I hope you guys set up a tent. No, that's just the teaser. Wow. All right. So. Um, okay. Here's the actual pitch. First, a little background for those of you who may not remember the the Twilight Zone episode. It's a good life. Uh, do you guys remember that episode? Yes. Yes. All right. But there may be some that, that don't. Yes, there may be. <clears throat> so basically in a small rural village somewhere in middle America named Peaksville, a baby boy named Anthony is born to Cloris Leachman. Uh, Anthony has some unexplained genetic mutation that basically gives him nearly unlimited power. But since he's basically a little kid, he has absolutely no moral compass. So he guilelessly sets people on fire who are mean to him. He mutates barnyard animals into uh, grotesque abominations. And he wishes anything that displeases him away into the cornfield. Though what that means is never explicitly stated. And of course, he's never disciplined because everyone's afraid to make him angry. Um, Rod Serling even notes in the introduction that the village is totally isolated from the rest of the world, though the residents don't know whether that's because he somehow moved Peaksville somewhere else 
or because he caused the rest of the world to suddenly cease to exist. So uh, there's the background, which you need to know before you even get into this show. Now here's the rest of the background, which uh, which I believe should probably unfold gradually over the first season. Um, well, I assume turns we, out, we're all going to have binders um, delivered, right? Yes, okay. right, uh, with tabs and, uh, and a large index in a separate binder. Thank you. Um, okay, so it turns out that Anthony did actually destroy or somehow blank out the, the rest of the world, save for Peaksville. And uh, the few people he didn't outright kill were, were also, they were all wished into the cornfield, uh, which it turns out is not a literal cornfield, but a limbo-like alternate plane of reality. Uh, meanwhile, the f- few remaining residents of Peaksville gamely soldiered on through Anthony's adolescence and his awkward years. Um, puberty, as you might imagine, was a particularly difficult time. Uh, I expect we'll probably indulge in some flashbacks to this period throughout the first season. Eventually, Anthony has either killed or wished everyone away except but himself, and uh, he begins to tire of his lonely kingdom. And around this time, he happens across the Peaksville Public Library. Um, for want of anything better to do, he goes inside, sits down, begins to read, and spends weeks there, uh, spending particular time in the religion and philosophy sections and uh, listening to the collection of vinyl records they have. And he begins to view himself as an abomination, uh, repents of his past actions and vows to do whatever he can to return the world as close to its former state as he can reasonably manage. Um, so he brings the citizens of Peaksville back from the cornfield, and they only have hazy recollections of their time there, but the fact that the population is thinned out considerably suggests that it wasn't exactly a party. He then uh, sets out to reconstruct the landscape and bring back its peoples. However, since he was just a kid when he blanked out the, the world, he has to base his new reconstructed world on the information he could garner from the uh, reference section of the library and the hearsay of the people returned from the cornfield. So basically everywhere is just a little bit skewed. Like in uh, New New York, for example, the Statue of Liberty is now just enormous because that's just how people tend to think of it. And that's really all he had to work from. And uh, since he had absolutely no reference material for large swathes of the planet like Kansas and the rest of Middle America, he simply used the one place he knew well, which is Peaksville. So huge amounts of the planet are just covered with this tiny little village. Uh, and it's kind of a work in progress. So he'll eventually get there and, and hopefully recover it to its former state. All right, take a breath. Fast forward to now. It's 15 to 20 years since the events of the Twilight Zone episode, and Anthony has now vowed to never again use his powers for destructive purposes. Uh, He's made great progress in his efforts to rebuild what he destroyed, but unfortunately he has no control over what he thinks and sees in his dreams. And he often wakes from sleep to find that he's dreamed some terrifying, grotesque creatures or some dreadful change that he has no recollection of. And uh, therefore, he can't immediately use his powers to fix them. So to help prevent this, he has agreed to self-exile aboard a gigantic zeppelin, uh, which we will refer to as the Sword of Damocles, um, where it is hoped that uh, his diminished direct contact with Earth will help prevent him from inflicting his subconscious imaginings on the populace. The airship also transports him from place to place, where he can tinker with those parts of Earth that still require repair. Uh, Of course, he naturally still has plenty of dreams about the airship itself, with bizarre and occasionally terrifying results. Uh, The blimp's admittedly wacky crew is responsible for keeping Fremont aloft and alive, trying to find a cure for his malady or his mutation, and protecting themselves and the ship from Anthony's dreams as best they can. Uh, His worst screw-ups, as usual, are banished to the cornfield. So, uh, here's the crew. Dr. House is uh, Fremont's personal physician, 
constantly in search of a way to prevent or ameliorate the effects of Fremont's dreams. He's driven to learn as much as he can about Anthony's mutation, partly because that's just the way he is, but also because a nebulous entity desires to find a way to replicate his powers for their own shadowy purposes. Uh, he goes along with it because they're his sole source of a steady supply of Vicodin. Larry Dallas is the ship's bartender. Because, <laughs> of course, there's a, a bar on, on board. Uh, clearly. It, any, well, any self It's a stressful Zeppelin, job. Yeah, any any Zeppelin worth its salt. Yes. In fact, during those periods when, uh, when Fremont is actually awake, I think most of the crew is probably drunk. Yes. <laughs> it's a very stressful job. It, it's good. It's real good. Uh, so Larry is at constant odds with House because House believes that an all-male crew will diminish Fremont's dreams by keeping his testosterone levels low. Of course, they also want to avoid the possibility of Anthony ever impregnating somebody and passing on his mutation. Uh, this, of course, doesn't sit well with Larry, who basically just wants to get laid. So uh, his efforts to smuggle women aboard provide comic relief and, uh, and fodder for Fremont's terrible imaginings. <laughs> uh, also, each time Anthony dreams, Larry's afro grows or shrinks or changes into some different highly amusing shape. Uh, Rudy Huxtable, for some reason, appears at the start of all of Fremont's dreams, lip syncing a popular R&B hit and then disappears. Each time she has a different prominent physical abnormality for unknown reasons. Her appearance generally portends something awful about to happen to the fabric of space-time, but uh, Larry Dallas always tries to make time with her anyway. The meaning of her mysterious link to Anthony is left as an exercise for the season two showrunner. I will be busy counting my money. <laughs> Moving on, Skeletor. Yes. Unbeknownst to our heroes... The various mutations and horrors banished to the cornfield have been organizing and planning a revolt. Skeletor, who has discovered a way to transport himself out of the cornfield, is their de facto leader, uh, due to his badass appearance and striking purple hood. His attempts are, fortunately, hilariously inept, and he is always killed in some totally non-committal fashion, which allows him to return week after week. Uh, but our recurring season one arc is the gradual ramping up of this threat until a full-fledged portal opens during the season finale. Uh, Reverend Jim Ignatowski, former taxi hack, recruited as the Zeppelin's captain due to his status as the world's foremost dirigible driver. He has no recollection as to how he got this status. He's also Fremont's spiritual guru, unleashing odd but subtly profound Zen cones that often help the crew out of whatever jam they're in. Uh, I think at some point in the second season, if Fox lets it live that long, he will absentmindedly scribble the plans to convert the Zeppelin into a working time machine onto the ship's console. <laughs> Does the Zeppelin, just, just to check in, does the Zeppelin flit? Oh, are you people still here? <laughs> I've got a dream of professional perpetual motion vibe, actually, a little bit, that it's, the, it's the Zeppelin yeah, that meets, just goes forever. Twin peaks. Yeah, yeah. Okay, keep going, Steve. As, as you know, I do not actually read, so I have no idea what you're talking about. Right. And to answer Dan's questions, no, Zeppelin, Zeppelin's, Zeppelin's, is, that, is there a different Zeppel, plural? Zeppelin. No, Zeppelin. Uh, they do not flit. I, I don't think it's even possible they for float, a Zeppelin to flit. They float, but not flit. They fleetly, fleetly fly, and that is all they do. Uh, let's see. Where was I? Where was Skeletor. I? Skeletor. Uh, no, we already did Skeletor. He'll appear. And then... <clears throat> oh, Joe Bluth. He oh, was yes. made uh, head of security due to a, a mix-up concerning his previous affiliation with what he describes as a shadowy elite law enforcement agency known only as the Hot Cops. He agreed to take the job only because Anthony consented to, one, replace his legs with self-balancing motorized wheels that play Europe's The Final Countdown whenever he enters a room, 
and two, give him magical powers. Uh, Anthony cannot, in fact, give Job magical powers, but Job has not yet worked out that his illusions only seem to function properly when Anthony is in the immediate vicinity. Uh, ben Linus is a cipher, as you may have guessed. Uh, he stowed aboard, then insinuated his way onto the security team by obsequiously befriending Job and applauding his crappy magic tricks. He frequently sabotages Linus's motives. Oh, he frequently sabotages the uh, the crew's attempts to repair whatever damage Fremont's dreams may have caused. Uh, his motives aren't clear, but he's likely to he's likely there to avenge the banishing of his daughter to the cornfield, to sure. kill Fremont in hopes of bringing about the end of the world, or possibly just to resolve some lingering daddy issues. This brings us to <laughs> Little Murray Sparkles. Yes. Mm. A cute cat puppet who simply appeared aboard one day and is hiding two shocking secrets. Ooh. A, Little Murray is, in fact, a girl kitty. <gasps> I know. Shocking, right? Did not see that coming. Ah, that's, that's what this show is all about. Twists and turns. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, in that case, you nailed it. <laughs> and long, long blocks of text. <laughs> and B, she was Ben Linus's daughter before. Oh being no! Oh. <laughs> she is aware of Skeletor's evil machinations and desperately tries to warn the Zeppelinites of the coming attack by the Cornfielders, but is unable to, as she can only meow and lick herself. She tries to write messages in the cat box, but Reverend Jim keeps scooping it before she's finished. And lastly, the Fawns. Ship's engineer, responsible for maintenance of the airship. <laughs> he says A a lot. Yes. And wax things. <laughs> to fix them. Yeah. So so what I is that it or is there more? Uh do you want more? You do want more, don't you? <laughs> is there That's more? A dangerous question. Yeah. That's what frightens me is that there actually is is more. Is there so more, the, Steve? The first it, it could probably time. have used an editor at some point. There's a 13-part novel series. So, so mm. what I like about this is that it, it's it's kind of an anthology series. It's like The Incredible Hulk, where they go from identical town to identical town, which I like for budgetary reasons. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, they can meet whatever crazy things have have sprung up there as a result of the reconstruction of the planet. And you, yet you've got a story arc involving your, your villain, Skeletor, trying to work his way out of the cornfield. And I like, it, it gives me a little of the Battlestar Galactica vibe where in that first season, um, you had that separate storyline on Caprica where where Sharon and Hilo were trying to get back there. And then it, it sort of culminated in the last episode. And I sort of see that for Skeletor, that he's going to emerge, you know, in, in, in and there'll be a climax at the end of the first season. I, I, I was getting both, uh, a maybe a little bit of like Twin Peaks atmospherically, just with that, especially that opening, which is very... Has right. a very strange ethereal feel to it, but it gives you a clue, which I like. Right, right, right. But also, um, I don't know. Remind me a little bit of Carnival, which is also an extremely bizarre show that you don't. It takes time to figure out what's going on, like just even literally, like in the action of the show. And then once you do, once you hit that sort of tipping point, you like you can go back and there's like a lot of stuff to like, oh, yeah, but because that's when he said this thing, right? Like it seems like there's a lot to unravel after you've sort of figured out what's going on and you go back. It seems like a reward multiple watch or punish as the case. may be. Although I would like to avoid randomness for randomness's sake, because that just gets tiring yes. damn quick. So how does Larry or whatever the bartender guy's name is smuggle people onto a Zeppelin? 
Well, they they have to. Uh, there's an away team, of course. They have to spend a lot of time on the ground. They have to land to refuel, and that's right. right. They and need they, supplies. Yes. They go from and, town to town. And yeah. he's making time with Rudy Huxtable at Bud Age. Well, he's trying to, but she disappears before he gets the opportunity. <laughs> she's only she's only there during the periods when when Fremont is dreaming, and then she immediately disappears. And I would and, imagine she could be variable aged, right? Indeed, yes. Oh, well, in this initial opening shot, she, of course, is the very small Rudy Huxtable right. from an early Cosby show. But, but she wouldn't have you know, to be always. No, of course not. All right. That makes perfect sense. Indeed. Any other questions for Steve? So many questions. <laughs> I, I, I got to say, I, I am, am fascinated by this, this idea. Um, I, I don't think anybody would ever approve it, but um, it's actually pretty cool, Steve. I gotta say, thank you, sir. The premise is good. What what network would this run on? Yeah, he said Fox, but that's not gonna. I don't. I don't think even Fox. This has gotta be some cable. This has gotta be cable. Uh, uh, HGTV, I think. Uh, uh, it's gotta be I like QVC uh, has actually expressed interest. <laughs> QVC, yeah. It's trying actually, to get away from you know all shopping mix. format. I think sci-fi would give this a, a decent shot. Oh dear God! I'm doomed. <laughs> no. The last thing I want is is to be shoehorned between repeats of of Shocktopus or Sharktopus and uh, and Birdemic. Well, with this cast, that's where you end up because you can't like it's hard to take Skeletor seriously. What? Oh, you'll take him seriously, my friend. Wait. <laughs> Maybe ABC Family. You can't take Skeletor oh. seriously. I I would watch I would watch at least the pilot, and I you know. That would be my sort of out there show for the year. Like, all right, I, I don't know. This seems weird, but you know, it, there's something in it that's compelling that would that would make me tune in for at least the first episode and see how it goes from there. I will say that I was exceedingly disappointed that the title Dread Zeppelin was already taken huh. by the. <laughs> that uh, sounds like a sci-fi show. <laughs> by the uh, the uh, Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus versus Dread Zeppelin. <laughs> Good stuff. All right, and we're out of time. Good night, folks. Yeah, that's yeah. All right, all right that's good, Jason. Top top that one. All right, yeah. This is going to be anticlimax. Boy, wow. All right, yeah, you can always fix it in post. All right. So my show is called my show is called the Bridge, and I do have an elevator pitch, which is it's um it's the West Wing meets Star Trek. So uh, my characters, of course, Captain Kirk, the the captain of the Enterprise. Um, Dr. Hawkeye Pierce, the chief medical officer, he's wisecracking, but, uh, his, his wisecracking is punctuated by dramatic moments of humanity. Uh, Lieutenant Willow Rosenberg is the science and magic officer aboard the ship. <laughs> Lieutenant Jeff Murdoch is the helmsman. He is a, a single guy always seeking, uh, companionship at the mess hall. But he's sort of hapless in his attempts, and they usually cause more complications than um, than he inten- intends. It's just a, a, a fact of life for poor Jeff. He's hapless. Commander Thomas Magnum is the first officer, a veteran of the Klingon Wars, who clashes often with Captain Kirk on who gets to go on the landing parties. Uh, Lieutenant Commander Kaylee Fry is the chief engineer. She is attracted to Jeff Murdoch. But the relationship is fraught with complications, usually owing to his mishaps with other women. Lieutenant Jerry Seinfeld, the navigator, he is good at his job, but brings a dry observational humor about the situations that the Enterprise finds themselves in. 
Ensign Veronica Mars, the communications officer. She's young, but she's very bright. She understands what's going on. She can investigate things and learn more. And is often frustrated about the fact that she only has she most of the time her job is to say hailing frequencies open. Um the endlessly put upon yeoman to Captain Kirk is Yeoman Charlie Brown. <laughs> and <laughs> Yo man Charlie Brown. And, and, and You're our last, Yeoman Charlie Brown. And and our last uh, our last character is Omar Little, a roguish free trader who operates on the edge of fe- Federation law, sometimes a hero, sometimes a villain, usually both. Captain Kirk knows Omar is a man of his word, but never knows what his ulterior motives are. Mm-hmm. And here's here's your plot uh, synopsis for the pilot episode. The crew is called into the briefing room in the early hours of the morning after news that a treaty negotiation with the Andorians has broken down, largely due to a diplomatic incident caused by a blunder on the part of Commander Magnum the previous night on Space Station K-7. The staff attempts to run damage control with Federation HQ. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Jeff Murdoch discovers that the woman he slept with the previous night was in fact a Klingon spy in disguise, a fact discovered only thanks to a chance encounter with a Tribble purchased by Lieutenant Commander Cayley. At the, at the bar on K7, wise beyond her years Ensign Veronica Mars, put upon Yeoman Charlie Brown, and Science Officer Willow Rosenberg are approached by Omar, a mysterious traitor who claims to know about a conspiracy to make the Federation look bad in order to win a vital mining contract. Omar's tip causes them to inadvertently cause yet more damage, leading to a dressing down by Magnum back on the Enterprise. When a crew member is killed in a clash with the discovered Klingon spy, Hawkeye Pierce's normal wisecracking nature turns serious. In the closing moments of the episode, he tells Captain Kirk about the death, leading Kirk and his staff to appear before the Council negotiating the treaty and revealing how the Klingons were conspiring to derail the negotiations. The episode ends with Kirk making a joke. And everyone laughing. Now, of course it does. Of course it does. Now, let me explain. <laughs> like the West Wing, the point here is that all Captain Kirk is the central central figure of the show. He's not intended to be the character with the most screen time. It, it you know, his he he is at the center, just like President Bartlett was at the center of the West Wing. But it's really about the crew and how they relate to one another and the various um, sort of dramatic incidents in their lives, as well as humorous incidents. It, it really is a a kind of a combination drama and comedy or dramedy, if you will. Is that a kind of camel? It is. It is. Kind of camel, like with one hump or something? It is. You could also be a comma, but I prefer dramedy. <laughs> you can choose either one. Anyway, and, and I think that in every episode, basically, uh, Hawkeye Pierce will uh, uh, be making a wisecrack and then suddenly somebody will die and he'll have to be very serious. <laughs> Or burst into tears or have um, a complete nervous breakdown. And you can see that we'll have some, you know, interaction because, you know, Jeff and Kaylee know that they really are meant to be together, but it always goes horribly wrong and he makes terrible mistakes. And, and uh, you know, Magnum insists on going in the shuttlecraft and Captain Kirk wants to drive the shuttlecraft himself. And they, there's a lot of fighting about that. And all the time... They never Jer- stop and ask for directions. And all the time Jerry Seinfeld is just like, you know, pushing in buttons at the console on the bridge. And what saying, do like, these buttons do? It's like, hey, what's, why do the Andorians have those antenna? They're not bugs. They're just like green guys. What's that about? <laughs> so that the bridge, that's my show. Who are these Andorians? I just love the idea of the interactions between a dejected Jeff Murdoch and put upon yeoman Charlie Brown. It seems like a perfect combo. Yeah, Charlie Fast Brown. Friends. He gets short shrift in the pilot, but Charlie, as as the you know the right hand man to the president, I mean captain, 
Charlie, um, Char- Charlie, he's he's good grief, you know, is is uh. going to be his most common uh, <laughs> common catchphrase. But um, you know, it's a tough job. It's a tough job being uh, the 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 guy who's got to make everything happen for Captain Kirk. He's got to like clean up the the captain's quarters. He's got to shoo away the women who are who are who are overstaying their welcome. The next morning, he's got to polish the captain's boots. Take, take a towel, honey. Yeah, he's a good man, Charlie Brown. He is a good man. It's true. And whenever they line up for protein tablets, he ends up getting a rock instead. It's true. It's true. Also, there's that episode where Veronica Mars and he go on the holodeck to play some touch football. And she that's not right. Pulls a horrible, horrible. Except then she snatches the ball away from it the last minute. Whatever that means. I don't know what that means. I think there's a a structural problem in the premise of, (laughs) of West Wing combined with Star Trek. In the West Wing, the most exciting place to be was in the White House because it's a place where you normally don't get to see. So you wanted to be in in there with the president, with his staff, in the place that you don't normally get to see. But when you're on a spaceship, the most exciting stuff is out the window. The planets you're going to, the aliens, the space combat. And if the whole show was going to be like West Wing, it would be like, I'm in a spaceship, but all I see, I keep seeing these same three corridors and they're sitting in the Ah. mess and looking out at the stars. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like reverse. What I'd say to that is that is that um, I see your point, Mister Executive. Um, for for budgetary reasons, we're going to make sure that the standing sets are, are are good and are used. But if you look back to our template of the original Star Trek, they also have away missions. And although our pilot is set on a space station, there are going to be members of the team are going to go on missions. They might be separated. They might be joined by red shirts who are horribly killed, which will allow Hawkeye to have his moment of reflection about man's inhumanity to cling on. And, um, and, and but there will be time for them to adventure on their own because you know the captain can't do it all. There's 350 people on that ship. Is so. there an external antagonist though? Because like there was like the Republicans on the West Wing. Like what is the external force that's? Well, we've got the geopolitical tensions of the Klingons and the Romulans. People plus, foreheads. plus, plus, you've got the well. The foreheads really pretty much were all the same in the original Star Trek. That's but true. anyway, the the uh, but then there's Omar. And Omar is more of a uh, a, a Harry Mudd sort of he's character. A free agent. He's a free mm. agent and mysterious, and he may he and Kirk have a little back and forth about uh, should I trust him or not. And sometimes he's trustworthy, but you never know what he's coming from. Is, so you've got both you've got both the large geopolitical ramifications and the sort of like interpersonal antagonism that between Omar and the captain. And will Omar be on every episode? Omar is uh the plan is to sign him to be recurring so in a in a 22 episode season he'd probably appear 12 13 times but we would like to have an option to make him a series regular after the first season if he is a successful because i think the real tension should be that omar somehow becomes part of the crew he's drafted perhaps yeah. and then and then be the bartender uh, yeah <laughs> it's it's possible I, I, yes and uh um when I'm discussing this premise with my wife, she suggested that he could be in 10 forward. And I said that that's the wrong show. And her, her response was, well, then nine forward. <laughs> I'm sure the old enterprise it was more like eight, seven forward, just a few fewer forwards. Anyway, yes, Omar, Omar's uh, secrets will be revealed. And, and, and I haven't decided yet whether he's actually a Federation agent <gasps> or a Klingon in disguise <gasps> or both. Or a triple. Did I just I, blow uh, your mind, Scott? I, I would I have to I go with Scott that I think I think needs more Omar is probably the top oh, yeah. of my list. And you gotta I've work got a him fever. in, though. and that would be Omar. my suggestion for a title. Needs more Omar. Needs more, more Omar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an excellent. I think what it would be like for me, it would be like, oh, I'm intrigued by this as a show, but I would, I feel like maybe I might be. You would have to work hard to keep me 
interested if, say, for example, the pilot, you know, Omar plays a major part, but maybe in, you know, episode two, you got to do that thing. We're like, all right, we got to establish we're not just about this. We're right. going to go other places. You might lose me a little bit as I think, well, what about Omar? Like, what happened with him? Well, Omar wasn't in every episode of The Wire, you know. They 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 were careful with their use of Omar in The Wire as well. This is true, but I mean, he sounds to me like the, the most, you know, I think he would be the person who yeah. I would be most intrigued with his relationship with Kirk and how that's going to play out. Who are we kidding? By and the third season, he's going to be like the Fonz. It's going to be the Omar show, <laughs> guest starring Captain He's going to ride a that's motorcycle really, yeah. over, a sh- over a space shark. A space shark, yes. <laughs> Klingon shark, a triple shark. A shark made yeah. entirely of triples. All right, so that's, that's my... Uh, that's my premise. I think I think we have to. We should all we should pick which uh, which networks everybody's shows <laughs> <laughs> are most likely to air on. Because I think I think if I do say so for myself, I've made a perfect CW show. <laughs> I agree. Yes, I I know my limits. After after much research, you have come to the perfect CW show. Lightning Bug is is uh would be a sci-fi channel show but it doesn't have the budget so it's going to have to be a Fox show and then yeah, cancel. It'd be Fox and get canceled. Yeah. Yours yeah. would be sci-fi. I think you I think you could pull yours off on sci-fi, Jason. Yeah. No, I th- I I, I, or I NBC. Think I could see NBC. I could see NBC's like we need some drama. We need we need an hour long. Um I I could I could definitely buy it on NBC. Scott McNulty's show is on CBS. Yes. Yes it is. <laughs> and and 30 years ago. <laughs> Yeah. I think I think Ren's show is is maybe ABC. I think ABC might yeah. might go for like oh we we oh, lost yeah. lost. Yep. You know, we got to follow would. that up with something. That's an ABC. Intriguing. Oh, I have to be another flash forward. That doesn't yeah, exactly. Play yeah, well. I was going to say who had flash forward? Whatever network that was, that's her show. Yeah, yeah, and uh, Steve's and, Steve's show again. Yeah, I think that's a uh, I think that's premium cable. I think that's that's HBO. HBO pays for a season or, and then maybe cancels it. I was going to say Cinemax. Stars. Stars. Either HBO or, or sci-fi, maybe Stars. Yeah, Stars doesn't go for sci-fi all that much, though. But they his, need one. His could be on FX. It's kind of got an FX vibe. Ah, FX doesn't do sci-fi though. Well, not yet. And FX is a little too serious. FX does anything uh-huh. they want to do. They haven't heard this podcast yet. I'm thinking HBO because then we can explore the passionate romance between Larry Dallas and the puppet cat. Yeah, <laughs> and the poop scooping. I think HBO may be the only people brave enough to touch this show. Yeah, it's Period. probably true. That's the rest of them are cowards. That's why. This is true. This is true. They don't want to push the envelope because they don't know where that envelope has been. No, really. Or what's in it? It? Could, it could be anywhere. Some of uh, some of the cat puppets poop. Might be and now, envelope. time for Glenn Fleischman show. <laughs> which, which will be on BBC America. <laughs> I'm already watching it then. <laughs> through the magic of uh of uh a portal through time and space, we're now joined who by Glenn Fleischman who has left his isolation booth. And uh Glenn, you you were you're responsible for this entire uh sham of a travesty and yet didn't actually participate in our draft. So we gave you a team. Yes, yes, you did. So let me recap. Now, you, you're going to make some swaps since this was an auto-pick team where we forced characters onto you. Let me recap the characters that we gave you. We gave you Kara Thrace, Starbuck from Battlestar Galactica, Lawaxana Troy from Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, Chuck, girl named Chuck from Pushing Daisies, Urkel himself from Family Matters, uh, Becca Valentine from Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda, Jack Donaghy from 30 Rock, Gumby, Animated or Saturday Night Live, your choice, um, B.A. Baracus from the A-Team, 
Daniel Faraday from Lost, and Jimmy McNulty for The Wire. Now, you're going to make some alterations, is that right? I, I actually thought this was a pretty good team. I was, uh, I was not upset about the choices you made, although I realize you were trying to make it hard for me, but I'm going to defeat you. So for uh, I'm only making two swaps. So for uh, Daniel Faraday, I've never watched Lost. I'm taking Holly, the computer, from Red Dwarf, okay. the, male, the male version. Uh, and then instead of Kara Thrace, since I never watched Battlestar Galactica to my shame, I'm taking Gadget Hackwrench from Chippendale Rescue Rangers, of course. All right. Which should surprise no one. No, they are synonymous. <laughs> I, if Jason was on the ball here, he would have had the Rescue Rangers team. Gadget Hackwrench was on my list. Good pick. I, I figure. I think she's on everybody's list. Um, Want to admit it or not? All right. So, so that was her for Halloween. With those, with those alterations. Um, and it is a good list, although I regret in listening back to the to the draft, uh, Steve Letts tried to give you Les Nessman from WKRP in Cincinnati. I would have taken Man, Les Nessman. I really regret not giving you Les Nessman. Okay, so... In whatever in whatever show Les Nessman was in, he would be operating a helicopter. Yes, yes. As God is my witness, I thought turkeys could fly. So, Glenn, <laughs> lay it on us. Uh, give us your Give us your pitch. Okay. Uh, I don't have a name for this show, strangely. It's the one thing I didn't think of until this moment. Ooh, you guys will we'll give, give me a name. A name yeah. So, All right, so here's the pitch. Here's the pitch. Not the pilot, the pitch. B.A. Baracus runs a junkyard. Didn't see that coming, right? With his nephew, Urkel. <laughs> B.A. runs the junkyard side, and Urkel runs the electronics recycling part. And Urkel, of course, regularly accidentally turns off the yard's giant electromagnetic thing that pulls up cars and stuff and it causes tons of broken metal to fall into BA's favorite muscle car and he says did I do that so we have the catchphrase right uh, fortunately Gadget who appears as an animated mouse in the show is always available to repair the car even when it's been disintegrated to component atoms Gadget is motion capture CGI and she's as large as the rest of the castmates this is not really explained she's played by Andy Serkin, of co- or Circus of course motion capture it's just, uh, you know. He's the only one in the union. Apparently, there's a very small, he's got a great gig. Uh, so here's the gag. It's not a regular junkyard. It's a junkyard in the future. It's a space-ish junkyard on Earth. So it's all broken hover cards, discarded 400-inch plasma displays, and it's called the Gumby Junkyard because in the future, <laughs> everything is nostalgic. And it's a faux, ironic 25th century tribute to D- Gumby, damn it, where cartoon characters can roam freely among the real people using hard light holographic hardware. That's a Red Dwarf and a, you know, Star Trek Voyager reference. Gumby appears in that form. He's a hard light holograph to welcome customers, but they made an error in research. They made him the Eddie Murphy Gumby instead of the insipid claymation Gumby. And he also provides the narration for the show, of course. Of course. So so boss Jack, Jack Donahue, who owns the junkyard, isn't having any of that. You know what that is. He's not having any of that. He lost his fortune playing cards with a three-armed man who was cheating. He's always chomping on an electronic cigar and saying his trademark phrase, one of these days to the moon, because he's secretly working on a spaceship made of junk that will take him to the moon. Uh, His wife, Lexana Troy, has a mysterious past and drives everyone crazy by discussing their innermost secrets without them first having disclosed them. She's secretly having an affair with Urkel because they are the two most equally matched, irritating characters in all of television. (laughs) I would challenge you, except for Family Ties, third season neighbor next door character might be. He should be on this show as well. Good knowledge. Uh, security officer. Them. I know. Next draft. We okay. another draft someday. Security officer Becca Valentine, hard as nails, fast as lightning, has a nasty habit of dropping, dripping lime juice into her eyes just for the thrill of it. 
She can't stand Gadget. She uses every chance she has to cut her down. Gadget is oddly oblivious, and she also rarely blinks. Part of her character. Uh, Valentine blows off steam with her buddy Chuck, who, despite having been dead, is rather charming, helps her run down problems, of course. And all of Valentine's co-workers assume the two of them are lovers, because you need that in modern shows, apparently. Uh, Valentine relies on a salvaged mining ship AI, Holly, to monitor the grounds, but Holly isn't very bright, so things are always happening. Because, you know, it's a show. Things are happening. And finally, Jimmy McNulty is a detective busted for his back attitude, bad attitude back to walking a beat. He stops by to run down leads and sleep off his bad memories. He's also there to try to make time with Gadget, who doesn't understand his advances, logically enough, since she's a cartoon mouse. But she keeps the taser handy just in case. So that's my concept. So, so it's a drama, then? <clears throat> it's a, maybe. It's a drama, comma, <laughs> camel dotty. It is. It is Sanford and Son in the 25th century. It, it is Sanford and Son, exactly. There you go. There you go. <laughs> B.A. and Urkel. In the, the B.A. and Urkel century. variety hour. I don't know what it's mm-hmm. going to be. Could, you know, it's uh, because you can bring in cartoon characters and other extinct beings. You might I, be I've got, it's, it's, I ain't getting on no plane, parentheses, of existence. <laughs> it's, oh. I ain't getting on no, parentheses, starship airplane. Wow. It's, um. Jefferson? Yeah. So, okay. should I pitch the pilot now? Are you ready for the pilot? <laughs> oh, well, there's more. Oh. He told you that was the pitch. That was just the concept. That's okay. set up the concept. characters. You don't have a plot yet. That was the elevator pitch, but it's a really That's long right. elevator ride. All right. The elevator is broken down. I got I got a pilot, but I don't have to pitch it. I can. No, no. I can take. I, we're notes? here. Pitch this sucker. All right. So, the episode opens. Voices, it's a you know long shot, you don't see anybody, it starts to pan in, there's our voices arguing one deep and one high-pitched and grating, and you move through all this junk, it starts with old you know Chryslers and things, and then it starts getting to more and more modern equipment as they pass through, and finally you see B.A. Baracus arguing with Urkel over hover car flux capacitators that were stolen, uh, he was ready to, to get rid of them, and he thinks that Urkel's taken them and sold them under his, under, uh, his nose, I don't know what you're talking about, Mr. Baracus! And then Donahue bursts in, stop your yapping. We have a shipment of 10 million Blackberry playbooks to process <laughs> for the unobtainium that the Canadians actually baked into the CPU. Canadians. To the moon! And, you know, then he leaves. Then we go into another scene. As it goes on, Are you it turns act out that more and more... <laughs> no, I can just do... I can just do Jack Donahue. <laughs> I wish we were on a hangout so you could see me cracking up. <laughs> <laughs> Mainly because I know he has the entire thing written. I'm sure he does. Script is available on request. No, it's just a part of this right now. So as the episode progresses, more and more things get stolen. Becca starts investigating. Jimmy tries to help out. Gadget's suspected. She calls in guest stars Chip and Dale, of course. And they show up. They mostly knock over things. They don't really add to it. But, you know, you need some more comic relief because it's a a dramedy or a comma or something like that. Finally, it turns out that Gumby's responsible. His programming is so erratic, he thought he was supposed to be running a black market operation to to keep things lively and... uh, then there's great happy reconciliation. The end. All right. That's the pilot. So it is a sitcom then, definitely. Sort of, sure. Single camera. <laughs> no one dies. But, but uh, you know. Not yet. But with a laugh track. That's right. Piped in. Mm. That's what I think. Any thoughts from the, uh, from the audience about this one? I, I, I like the mishmash and I like, I like, uh. I like Glenn's Alec Baldwin impression. I actually think that might sell it for me. I quite like Glenn's Alec Baldwin impression. I agree. To the moon! To the moon. Alec, Alec Cramden. Ralph Baldwin. I was waiting for the Luaxana Troy. Little Futurama. Glenn doesn't do Luaxana Troy. Uh-huh. I think there are not enough sci-fi comedies in the world. So, Especially with Mr. T. 
Well, does anyone remember <laughs> the guys who ran the junkyard, the Andy Griffith show, in which he runs a junkyard? Salvage and builds one. A to go- yes. Yes. No. Yes. No. But none of us remember it. <laughs> that was my inspiration. And they were building salvage a rocket. One. Yeah. They were building to a rocket, the and they go to the moon to salvage stuff. I just. Ah. It was nearly as good as Way Out Space Nuts with Bob De- uh, John uh, Bob Denver. The only way you could have made this better was incorporating some kind of seat, like one of the characters is a secret artist a la the Iron Giant, because that's what I always think of when I think of giant junkyards. Gadget could be doing that in the spare time. You think that she's all business and just makes ridiculous gadgets that don't work, but in her spare time, she's sculpting in the back 40. Oh, maybe Chuck, there you maybe go. Chuck is, is a sensitive uh, person who's building. Yeah, I thought, she, I thought she was a little underutilized. Yeah. It's true. Mm-hmm. Later episodes. Oh, I see. <laughs> fleshed out. Yeah. Uh, how, how many episodes do we give this show? Um, Leave room for Chip and Dale. Eight. Chip and Dale. Well, we have to get the you know emotional, romantic resolution with Chip and Dale also because, you know. All right. Are they lovers? Do they have it, primary sexual characteristics? No one knows. Is there? Is there that'll be it. That's a great part of the pitch, by the way. Yeah, I, I'll pass now. <laughs> Tell those that to the executives. Yes, mystery of the primary sexual hey, characteristics. Greg, you know Greg the Bunny made that acceptable. All right, Glenn and, 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 and Greg the Bunny went on to great success. And, and, yes, it did. It was so. <laughs> all right. Thank you for listening to my pitch, okay, and thank you for stepping through your portal in space time to pitch it to thank us. You. Thank you. All right. So, so uh, yeah. This happened. So let's never do that. Let's never do this again. Let's never. Did it happen? I'm not sure if it happened. And so we learned sports analogies don't work. Are we going to have any listeners left after this episode? I was entertained. You know, I, I thought it was a, I thought it was a fascinating exercise in, in complete insanity. And uh, why, why do sports fans have all the fun? You know, TV fans can have fun too. We need to have a winner. Let's vote for our favorite show. All right. Oh, okay. yes, you can't we, vote for your own. How do you do this? Should. Okay, yeah. everybody um everybody send me a Skype uh send me a Skype message right now, you know, a little Skype uh instant message with your vote and it'll be oh. secret ballot. I have to figure out how to do that. Oh. All right. Um it's a tie. Uh-oh. It's a tie. Nobody it's a wins. Trap. So so I'm going to uh hold on a second. I'm going to I'm going to do a tiebreaker. Oh. Those are the finalists. Yes, jeez. The fate of the universe is in is in John's hands. I can't believe I'm <laughs> doing this, but uh, there you go. All right, that that seems dangerous, ladies and gentlemen. We have a winner, tabulated um, uh, by the law offices. Of, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Ernst and Young came by, and they said these are terrible ideas. But the winner is Steve Lutz. Thank you, Steve. Hey, Congratulations. Uh, I demand a recap. Pray for me. Excellent I knew job, my strategy right. of putting you all to sleep so that you would not answer or ask questions and expose the gaping plot holes would <laughs> would be a winner. Uh, actually, any show with an omnipotent character who's controlling the fabric of reality, you have no plot holes. This is true. Anthony just made it that way. Sorry. You know, I think there have to be limits, though, or else it's just ridiculous. Well, that's why I, that's why I voted for his in the in the final showdown thing here because it wasn't my original vote. Definitely, it was because. <laughs> ridiculous, ridiculous character choices like the only way i think you can make them work is if it's built into the premise of your show that insane ridiculous things are gonna like so he's got an excuse in other words for skeletor to be there and for the rudy hospital and for all that crazy stuff whereas jason was trying to make a conventional show with charlie brown and a couple other people who don't fit but my original vote well, was for ren but yes 
This is why I had to pick Anthony Fremont first and suffer the slings and arrows. No one else would have picked him. Do you not understand that? It's not a matter when you pick them. No one else was. But 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 what if somebody had? (laughs) I'd have been completely screwed. Believe me. I think you people have a bias against sitcoms. It may be. Possibly. My show is a moneymaker. Mine is a sitcom. Did you miss that? I think, well, that, that, that's what's going to happen, you know, <laughs> is that all these other shows are going to be canceled. And, and then after five years, we're going to say, what, Q Conquers All is still on the air? Exactly. And that money <laughs> and will Scott, keep rolling in. And Scott will, will like literally be wearing a different Hawaiian shirt every hour. They, that's they right. actually replaced uh, Q in season three with Ashton Kutcher. And it worked out great. <laughs> it was fine. He's uh, down on his luck. Billionaire by night, omnipotent being by day. <laughs> no, no one really noticed. We replaced him with Anthony when that show was canceled. And <laughs> we could just pick him up. <laughs> so now I have to ask, what have we learned? <laughs> Never do this again. Well, we've learned that we have way too much time on our hands. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Network executives are idiots. Clearly, we're we're idiots. Also, also clear. Yes. 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 Never do this so again. So far, nothing learned. Steve though. said. So that was. I think that's. Checked. We've squandered the goodwill of a number of uh, otherwise pleasant listeners. Yes. Mm-hmm. Listener. Now. Had to be done. Yeah. It was. Uh, it was necessary. Actually. So see you next week, guys. Yeah. Next week we, we- could. Uh, we could run our own television network. Oh, Clearly, yes. all these shows on one network. Yeah. All we need T. is like a time machine. Ti. Yeah. Yes, we would need a time machine. Yes, would if you? we had a time machine, we would start and a multi-billionaire. <laughs> start our TV network. First thing I do about a time machine. That, that's your premise for a new TV show, right there. <laughs> and with two that, friends discover a time machine. What's the first thing they do? They start a TV network. That's right. Resulting Bring in the complete collapse of society, and then the fun Fred begins. Fred Astaire dancing with vacuum cleaners. Wackiness ensues. That's right. Fred, Fred Astaire. Astaire is dancing with the stars and vacuum cleaners. Oh, see. Time machine. Man. All things are possible. That's true. But they made hot tub time machine, right? I would root for the antagonist of that show who was trying to get the time machine away from them and turn everything <laughs> to normal. Ah, and shut down the network. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, that, that wraps up this ridiculous thing that we tried. <laughs> this podcast is over. And <laughs> so before we go, I want to say thank you to uh, to my guests one last time before they commit ritual <laughs> suicide, murdered. I think. Um <laughs> To the showrunner of Lightning Bug, John Syracuse, thank you for for participating in this in this exercise and taking it seriously, sort of to a point. I was on this show, Jason. Yes, of all the shows you've been on, this was one of them. Scott McNulty, showrunner of Q Conquers All. Um, what's the secret to your success? Uh, I just got an email from Chuck Lorre. He's going to produce my show. So screw Excellent. you all. All right, fair enough. Dan Morin, producer of Bloody. Yes, that was the the working title. The TV critics will love that because they can say things like "bloody awful." So that's yeah. I'm all, but only, only in Britain. Britain. Yeah, trust me. I've got I've got twenty more potential titles. We'll do that after uh, in the uh, in the after. Oh, I can't session. wait for that. <laughs> oh, they're good. Trust me. All right, Steve Lutz, our winner tonight, and the showrunner Woo-hoo! and creator of Good. Thank you for yes. being here. You are welcome, and I challenge you to edit my portion of this podcast. You out. have you have pummeled us into submission. Thank you, sir. With your premise. It was my aim. Yes. Well well done. Well played. Serenity Caldwell, creator of Wiretapped. Um, yes, this was a good idea, too. Thank you. Well, thank you. In a, in a podcast a... littered with bad ideas, <laughs> this was a good one. It was fun to create a good, mediocre idea. 
And uh, we would be remiss if we didn't also cite Glenn Fleischman, who was the guy who thought we should do this and then didn't ever do it. He, he may be the smartest of us all, Jason. Yes. I curse That's his true. name. Ender of he podcast. tricked us all. Fleischman. Yes. Yes, he outwitted us. And now Fleischman. only he shall survive. Repeller of audiences, Ender of podcasts. He's meditating somewhere and breathing deeply. I think I can hear him from here. I think so. Uh, all I right. think we all should join him. Well... Again, on behalf of all of us, I am I am the uh, creator of the bridge. Uh, thank you all for <laughs> listening to this ridiculousness, and um, yeah, we're sorry. Until next time, if there is a next time, again, I think the jury's still out on that. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Eat it, Snell. We apologize. Dan's titles. You want me want my titles? Most of them are titles. really bad. Yeah, why not? Uh, all right, so I've got I've got several. I just kept jotting stuff down whenever I thought of stuff. Most of these are very bad puns, as you as you realize. Uh, what do we got here? We got uh, Fang You. Thanks for nothing. Thanks but no thanks. <laughs> oh, thanks for hire. Thanks for the memories. <laughs> okay, that's enough. Uh, I'm done we, with thanks. I know where this is going. <laughs> Boo. Bl- bloody minded. Uh, this one I thought might work better as a uh, episode title: "Midnight in the Garden of Evil and Evil." Uh, undead life on the streets. Dial V for vampire. Batshit crazy. Uh, night riders. Street. No K. No uh-huh. K. Night night. Oh, yeah. uh, moonlighting two. Um, have fangs will travel. Sorry, there's one more thing. Wow. Uh, worse than their bite. Uh, Stop. V- vamps. <laughs> the. Th- the three, the three vampires, <laughs> vampires and things. No, seriously, stop. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>